Hi, it's Christina and Kristen from The Real Crime Podcast. Have you ever been curious about the real estate side of true crime? What happens to houses after someone dies in them? How dangerous is it really to be in real estate? Where did your favorite serial killer grow up? Well, Well, we we have the show for you. This is a podcast from the perspective of an active realtor and a true crime junkie. Give us a listen. You might be disappointed, but listen anyway. Hello and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. What up? <laughs> That's Brittany. Sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I forgot my name. You forgot your name? Yeah. Does that happen often? I forget how to spell it a lot. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> I'll, I'll just have like, I'll be like, what? There are so many different ways to spell both of our names. I've seen so many variations on the spelling of my name specifically that now I like, I respond to any of them, <laughs> but I'm just like, I can correct people, but most of the time they're still going to say it and pronounce it wrong. And so I'm like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thanks for tuning in again. I saw that we had a couple more reviews, right? You sent me. So we got a five star review from old Natalie K124. Shout out to Natalie K124. Her sick day got so much better after listening to us. And listen, I am very grateful that you chose to listen to us on your sick day, of all things. <laughs> uh, Could have watched Law and Order SVU. I mean, that's the usual go-to, isn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> Keep it up with the Kardashians. It's my trash show. <laughs> Back to the subject at hand. Today's episode is going to be one that I am leading, and we are going to be talking about a case we mentioned in our Alexis Murphy case. This is the Stephen Epperly case, <laughs> which <laughs> which was the precedent used for charging Randy Taylor with murder without having a body. So as I was researching this case, I was like, there's no way that I can't like not talk about it because it's just too interesting of a case. Okay. So I'm going to put this out there right here at the beginning. I know that basically all of the evidence is circumstantial because they don't have a body. So they can't really like say specifically he did this, but once you hear all the evidence, you're like, oh, there's no way that anybody but him did this. So I'm a little iffy on the first degree murder part. I think maybe second degree murder, but he definitely did it. So off topic, but my state, we don't have degrees. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. I don't know what state I'm from, but like, I'm sure you can Google it, but <laughs> I think it depends on by state, but there are some states that do third degree murder and some that don't. And then there's like manslaughter and there's like a slight difference between third degree and manslaughter, but I never remember what it actually is. <laughs> so first degree is. First degree is in the moment, right? First degree is the one that where you have to have an intent to kill. So basically, you planned this murder premeditated, essentially. Second degree is the one that's like heat of the moment. You killed this person, but it wasn't premeditated. You didn't have that plan formulated in your head. And then manslaughter is like an accidental, kind of like a car accident where somebody ends up dying. I think it depends on the severity of it. Because yeah. I think like... Third degree, I mean, I could be totally wrong, but I think third degree is like if you're wrestling and you accidentally snap their neck. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that's probably probably the case. I think manslaughter is like 
when it's completely accidental, mm-hmm. but you're still at fault because you did something wrong. I could be totally wrong. About that. that would make sense. It's like your actions understandably could have ended up in that circumstance, but it wasn't something you were intentionally doing. So, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, back to the case, Gina Renee Hall. She came from a small town called Coburn, Virginia. It was off at a little corner where the border lines up with Tennessee and Kentucky, I think it said. Uh, so it's a very small town. Basically, everybody knew each other. <laughs> uh, people don't lock their doors, that kind of thing. They didn't lock their doors. Yeah. I mean, this was also back in the 70s, 60s time frame. So this was before the whole major serial killer thing came to light, I guess. Yeah, because they didn't like actually start using serial killer, like the, the phrase serial killer until like, what, the 80s? Yeah, something like that. You're touching the mic. Sorry. I was trying to fix it because I like it. Yeah, it's okay. She had an older sister and two younger brothers. She played tennis, golf, and gymnastics in high school. And she taught gymnastics and tap dancing to children. Oh, look at her. We love a queen. <laughs> uh, she was active in her Methodist church where she led a Bible study group and taught Sunday school. When she was two years old, she actually was in an accident where she was severely burned over 90% oh. of the yeah 90% of the right side of her body. So she had a bunch of skin graft surgeries and things like that over the years. I have a question about that. Yes. Um, so skin graft, that's where they take a part of your skin from like a like not a fat area but like a fat area but don't you have scars from the skin graft it's really really painful right yeah to my knowledge i know that they mentioned that these surgeries were like super difficult for her and she had a lot of scars so i'm assuming it's something similar to that i know that nowadays they also have synthetic skin grafts so i don't know at what point these happened in like if she maybe had some that was like a mix of both. I do know that they mentioned that as she was growing and her skin was becoming tighter, they would have to do like cuts in the scars to allow her skin to stretch and have elasticity. I don't like that. Yeah, it it did not seem like a great situation. She was two years old when that happened. And because of that, she dressed relatively conservatively to hide her scars. Girl, your scars are beautiful. Agreed. They also said that this was a reason why she avoided serious romantic relationships because she was insecure about them. She didn't know how somebody would react to her scars, like if they saw them in an intimate setting. Her sister said uh, she could not have handled the emotional stress of a physical relationship with somebody and never put herself in that situation. Oh, I hate that for her. Yeah. And her mother, I guess, blamed herself for the burns. They didn't go too in-depth about what happened, like why her mother blames herself, but... It was probably a car accident. Maybe. Or maybe she was the one watching her when it happened and she just wasn't paying attention. But her mother left, so her father raised her and her sister for a little while. And then I think it said she was six when her father remarried. So I'm pretty sure the brothers were half brothers, but I don't know 100%. I don't think that really matters. But she was described as having a positive energy and an enthusiastic smile. She was Uh voted most popular in her high school superlatives in her senior year. Good for her. And then like her former boss said that she got along with everyone. So she was just a really pleasant person to be around. I love that for her. She originally attended a small college near her home for about a semester, but then she ended up transferring to Radford University in the spring of 1980. Her sister, I think, lived out in that 
area. And so she would be closer to her sister. But that college also had a stronger nursing curriculum, which is the area that she wanted to go into. I love that she wants to be a nurse. That's so cute. Yeah, I imagine that having to be in hospital so frequently and around medical professionals probably influenced the decision to go into that field because it's like they helped her. So now she wants to help other people in the same way. I love that for her. Same. So she didn't do drugs. She barely drank. I think her friend said they couldn't remember a time when she ever had more than one drink a day. And then in spite of Radford's party school reputation at the time. She wasn't really a partier. Like she would go out and dance with her friends, but she didn't do all of that stuff. (laughs) She was like the mom friend. Essentially. Yeah. Love that. And then she was 18 at the time that she disappeared. I'm going to go into a little bit of background about Stephen Epperly as well. And the main reason I'm doing that is because this works as evidence to back up the fact that he probably did this. Well, I don't feel like it's kind of, to me, when I'm listening about true crime cases, I think if it's available and the information is there, it is important to go into the background of these people who commit these crimes, simply because I like to analyze what made them do this or, you know, the nature versus nurture thing, like you mentioned, I think episode Mm -hmm. and it makes sense too because when we talk about his history you're going to see that even though he maintains his innocence in this case all of this adds up to me to say that he definitely did this well i'm going in with no knowledge about this so i can't wait to see if I think he's guilty. (laughs) Oh, you definitely will. Like, I can 100% say you're going to come out of this thinking that he definitely did this. So he was described by people as loyal. Like, he would give you the shirt off his back type loyal. But that was really, like, the main positive that I could find. That's sad. Yeah. So he was a lackluster student. Teacher said that he was intelligent, but he barely maintained a C average. He was respectful, but he was prone to misbehavior because he was hyper. Some people say maybe he had ADHD or something like that. But he was never diagnosed. Um, What does lackluster mean? Lackluster is essentially like he wasn't a brilliant student. Basically, he did enough to still be eligible to play on the football team, but just barely enough. <laughs> like he was more muscle. Well, they said that he was intelligent, but he just didn't put in the effort. Oh, he didn't apply itself. Really. Yeah. So he was described as narcissistic by some former team members. Um, <laughs> so they said Epperly always had an ego, but by then it had developed into this massive ego. When they say by then, I think after he graduated high school. So in that after high school, between college phase, he was going out into the nightlife around Radford and Blacksburg, which is where Virginia Tech is, mm-hmm. and using the nightlife there as like a quote unquote hunting ground. Oh. Yeah, he was described as kind of being a ladies man but not in a really good way ew that's nasty yeah radford actually used to be a former women's college they had recently opened it up to be co-ed but it was still primarily women i think they said it was a ratio of like five to one so there's a lot more women in the radford area so i guess he it was like fertile hunting grounds so to speak okay off topic but i hate the term ladies man because you know another man is that is a misogynistic phrase i don't like it that is disgusting yes agree we are feminists in this house (laughs) Yes. And 
when I read this next section, you're going to realize he wasn't actually a ladies' man. He was just one of those people who forced himself on Disgusting. people. Disgusting. Yes, he's the worst kind of person. So Ugh. he had a temper. People said Gross. he had a screw loose and he was prone to flying off the handle. Gross. Anger um, management. <laughs> yeah. Um, another teammate said it seemed like the simplest disagreement with somebody would escalate very quickly once he, quote, flipped the switch, unquote, he was not turning back. So he would get into bar fights that would usually end up in the other person having like a broken jaw or a broken nose or something like that. It wasn't just a black eye. and He was satisfied. It was like he had to beat them up. In this book I was reading, let me find the name. It's called Under the Trestle, the 1980 Disappearance of Gina Renee Hall and Virginia's First Nobody Murder Trial by Ron Peterson Jr. I mean, you think of nobody, no crime, but my girl Tay-Tay. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, she's right, but not in this case. So in that book, they described a violent altercation with his sister, Jane, who was 15 at the time. I think he was only a couple years older, where he hit her. And then when his mother tried to intervene, he became violent with his mother. He was arrested and he was processed for domestic assault. But about an hour later, his mom said it would be better for the family if they dropped the charges. So his mom's an enabler. Yes. Love that. Summer after high school was described as being filled with getting into fights and being aggressive with women. A friend said, quote, Steve would get into a fight and turn into an absolute lunatic, a raging animal. It would take three or four guys to pull him off the other guy. And then there was another former teammate who recalled doing double dates with Steven for a little bit until he had heard stories about him forcing himself on his dates at the end of the night. Um, disgusting. The quote said, the first time it happened, we kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt, but then the second time word got around pretty quickly and he was excluded. So it at least seemed like they weren't associating with him, but there wasn't really any consequences for him for doing what he was doing, you know? He actually had two rape charges. Gross. We don't... Mm-mm. I don't like him. One of them was dismissed, and the other one, he was found not guilty. For the first one, it was a woman he had dated briefly. Mm-hmm. He pretended to be in trouble to get into her apartment before forcing himself on her. So it seemed reminiscent of Ted Bundy, where he would make himself seem like he was a cripple or something like that, and he needed help. And then he would lure the person in and then do what he did. In that first encounter, she immediately filed a police report, but the case was dismissed due to insufficient evidence. She mentioned... Oh, oh. Well, yeah, now he's like 69, 70 almost, but... At the time, he was in his 20s. Oh, yeah. This is in the 80s. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. During that encounter, she recalls him saying, don't scream or I'll kill you while choking her. Oh. So keep that in mind. <laughs> And then also Epperly claimed the sex was consensual, which is what most rapists say. And it's not actually true. Yeah. Yeah, The second case, the one that he was found not guilty was four months after the first one. He met a woman at a pool. He was saying he and his friends were going to have a party later at his apartment, wanted to bring her to the apartment to show her how to get there for the party later. She was hesitant. She didn't really want to go, but he persisted. And so eventually she relented and went with him. But when they got there, he raped her. And then after he raped her, he manipulated her, which I thought was even worse than the other time when he threatened to kill the person. She said that his behavior turned to be kind of weird, where he acted like he felt guilty about what he did for hurting her. And then he claimed that he would kill himself if he ended up in jail, if she reported him. Oh, okay. Because 
rape is a felony. That makes me think of those guys, you know, like, I'm going to kill myself if you break away. <laughs> exactly. Like, he manipulated her and she reassured him that he wasn't going to press charges, but obviously she did end up filing a report. Is this the one that was dismissed? No, this is the one that the jury said he was not guilty. Yeah, I guess it was because it was, quote, he said, she said, but it's like, I feel like she had a plenty of evidence, but it's one of those things where back in the 80s, people weren't willing to take a woman at her word. Well, we had just gotten right, so. Yeah, so it's like, if this had been tried nowadays, he would have been found guilty, I think. So after his whole college experience, I think he wanted to go pro in football, but he didn't really have a good record, I guess. He barely played. That's so, what he did. <laughs> um, be cool. So he struggled to find steady employment after the fact, and he was 28 years old at the time of the crime. He was living with his parents in Radford. What a loser. Not that Listen. if you live with your parents, you're a loser, <laughs> but you're a loser because you tried to rape females and you abuse them. And so that's what you get. You get to live with your parents. Yeah, I was about to say, I still live with my parents. That's Brittany. different. <laughs> you're not a loser in the sense of you're not trying to rape people. I mean, I am a little bit of a loser, but not in that sense. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> so the night in question, due 28th, 1980, Stephen Epperly basically invited himself out with a group of four guy friends to go to the club at the Blacksburg Marriott near Virginia Tech. This meant that the plans changed because it was just going to be four guys. So they were going to take one car, but now it was five. So they had to take two separate cars. Epperly went with his friend, Bill King. I guess they had been friends since they were like six years old or something, if I remember right. So Bill King at the time was watching his parents' lake house up near Claytor Lake. The parents were out of town, I think they said in Myrtle Beach, and so they were gone for about a week. So Bill was watching the house, and Stephen had frequented going there for the last six years. So he knew the place, so keep that in mind. Gina, that same night, had attempted to convince her sister to come along with her because she was deciding to go hang out at the club, have some fun because she had just finished a week of really intense midterms or something like that. Good for her, girl. Go out and have some fun. But her sister was really tired, so she didn't end up going. And so Gina decided to go alone. <gasps> Gina. Not that this is your fault, but Gina. Yeah. So they arrived about the same time at the club. Gina and Steven ended up dancing for about half an hour together. They hadn't gone into the club together, but yeah. And so after some other interactions, he ended up inviting her back to the lake house. <laughs> so they left around 1230 in the morning. Bill had gone out with them to the car because he had left the key to the lake house in his car while he was going out there, I guess Stephen had asked if he could use Bill's stepfather's T-Bird to get to the lake house. I think a T-Bird is like a really fancy sports car or something like that. Oh, a Thunderbird. Yes, there we go. And Bill King's like, uh, no. <laughs> so what they ended up doing was they took Gina's car. Stephen drove Gina's car because he knew the directions to the lake house. You drive my car? You're not on my insurance. <laughs> you think I'm a... 
default on my insurance because you want to drive it? Real. Gina's sister insists that she would not have gone with Stephen unless she had been forced or tricked into believing that the others were coming as well. Because like we mentioned before, she was very insecure about romantic relationships and things like that. She was also just very aware. Yeah. Like her sister, there's a quote here from her sister that said, no one knew my sister better than me. There's no way that she would have left that bar on her own free will with some 28 year old guy that she had just met. No way. Gina was not naive. So her sister believes that Stephen must have tricked her in some way. I think in the book, it mentions that Gina might have been under the impression that the other people that they were with were going to be coming to the lake house as well. But instead, it was just the two of them. About 1 a.m., Gina's sister got a call from Gina where she sounded very uneasy, nervous, and out of character. And I'm just going to read this directly from the book. It was very eerie when I read it. So her sister answered the phone and said, hello. I can't tell if her name is Delana or if it's Diana, because I've seen both ways. D-L-A-N-A or Diana. I'm just going to call her D. Yeah. So in the book, it's, it's Delana, but I've seen Diana as well. So anyway, throwing that out there. So hello, D said. D, the other voice said nervously. Gina? D said. Yeah, Gina replied. Where are you? D asked. I'm out at the lake. Well, what are you doing at the lake? I'm looking at it. Who are you looking at it with? Steve? Please hurry home, D said. Suddenly, the phone on Gina's end hung up and the line was dead. So she said she was out there with Steve. Steven, Steve, like, (laughs) it's not hard to connect those dots. So Bill King, he arrived at the lake house around 3.45, 4 a.m. with a female friend he had previously dated. When they got there, they said that there weren't really like any lights on. So he was kind of noisy as he was coming in to alert Steven and Gina that they were coming in in case they needed to make themselves presentable or whatever. They, I guess it was like a three level house. So it's probably a basement, first floor, second floor. That's what I'm thinking. So Bill entered in on the second floor and Steven was on the first floor when he kind of came out and was like, hey, Bill, is that you? But he says that he never actually saw Steven. He only heard his voice from downstairs, but he was hidden away underneath the stairs. And so Steven says that they're about to leave and Bill's like, oh, you don't have to do that. We're going to go swim. Well, what in the morning? <laughs> well, no, this is this is almost four o'clock in the morning. So, yeah, oh. it's just, yeah, it's, oh. it's even later. Odd. Bill and his friend go out there. Bill doesn't actually go swimming, but the friend does. Um, he's kind of like sitting on the edge of the dock or whatever with his feet in the water. So about 4.15, 4.30, when they're out there, Bill said that Stephen came outside and like turned on the light and was just like, hey, we're leaving now. But in that entire situation, neither Bill nor the friend recall hearing or seeing Gina. Well, she was probably already dead. Yeah, that's that's the guess. The friend, Robin Robinson, which, why do people do that? You know, it's like Eric Erickson, Robin Robinson. That's, anyway. <laughs> uh, Robin Robinson notes, having seen Epperly shirtless and drying himself off with a blue towel during that initial conversation. Because Bill didn't see him, but I guess she was at a slightly different angle. But yeah, she's saw him drying himself off with a blue towel. And that's important because that comes back later. Later that same night, Bill and the friend are laying in the den later when Bill's foot touches a wet spot. He didn't look. He just kind of assumed it was from a towel or a bathing suit that had been left there. And he didn't make note of it the following day. Friends came over because it was getting close to the July 4th holiday. So I think it was just kind of like summer. So people are going out to the lake and just having fun. A bunch of guys who had been at the club the night before and including Stephen Epperly showed up at the lake house just to kind of hang out. At one point, Epperly goes to get a soda from the house, but he takes a lot longer than he should. Bill made note of that in his interviews. 
and considering he was familiar with the house, you would think it wasn't going to take him that long to find what he needed. Uh, obviously. And so when he came back, he claims that he just couldn't find like a bottle opener. At about 6.30 that morning, Dee went to go check on her sister when she woke up and she found that Gina wasn't home. So one of Gina's friends who she was romantically linked with, I didn't write down his name, but he was in the military and he was back for about a week from Italy where he was stationed. And they'd had sort of like a long distance romance type thing that was developing. So he showed up about an hour later because he had planned to meet up with Gina just to yes. hang out and get to see each other. He hadn't heard or seen from Gina, and they both said that that was very out of character for her to not notify anybody that she wasn't going to come back or be there. Yeah. So initially, Dee believed that maybe she had run off one of the winding roads and, like, gone off the road. And, like, breath. Yeah. So later that day, a large group of friends were out searching for Gina. The sister tried to file a missing persons report. She tried doing that at two different police stations. I think it was the Radford police station and then one in the next town over, but both of them basically said the same same thing where a person needs to be missing for at least 24 hours before they can file the report. She called her dad and her dad, I think early the next morning, because she didn't get in contact with him until like nine o'clock that night. Cause at the time they didn't have cell phones. Like in the case we covered last week, this was about the same time. Cause it was the 1980s. He came out the next morning to Radford and then they made it more a concerted effort to go out and look for yeah, Gina. At this point, she's what missing for two days. Yeah, because she had gone missing on, technically, Saturday was the last time her sister Mm -hmm. saw her. So in the process of the search, police were like dragging the lake. They had scuba divers looking all around and in the river that the lake was connected to. Gina's sister got a local radio station to play a PSA about Gina twice an hour, like at the top and the bottom of the hour. So this happened on Sunday, which was that time frame before Dee realized her sister hadn't come home and when they went to the lake house. But Deputy William Patton noticed Gina's car parked along Hazel Hollow Road under the railroad trestle with its trunk open on Sunday morning. I think they said around like five in the morning or something like that. He said he passed it the first time, didn't really think anything of it because I think there were two other cars and that's a place where people will park to go fishing. But he drove past it again 12 hours later and that's when he stopped because he was like this is a little weird yeah he didn't see anything suspicious but he did a license plate check the car wasn't reported stolen yet so he didn't do anything about it (laughs) during the search on monday two friends had been tasked by gina's father to go and specifically search for the car so i think it was monday afternoon the two friends found the car in the same spot with the trunk open So one of them stayed with the car and then the other one went to go let the police know so that they could, you know, uh, case the scene and see if there was any evidence. One of the friends did make note of the fact that the driver's seat was pushed all the way back, whereas Gina was the type to drive with it really close because she was barely five feet. So he was short. Yeah. So it led them to believe that somebody else had been driving the car. Yeah. So when police arrived, they found blood, head hair, and pubic hair in the open trunk. All of this was kind of leading them to believe something bad had happened to Gina, Mm -hmm. but they didn't think that she had been murdered just yet until these next cycle of events happened. Bill King actually hadn't heard about Gina being missing until he heard the PSA on the radio. He made the connection like, oh, this is the girl that Stephen was with the other night. So he went and talked to Stephen, said, 
you should call the police and give them the info you have so that they don't think that you have anything to hide. And he noted that Stephen's main concern was who knew that he was with Gina that night and then to have those people not broadcast that information. Okay, guilty. Yeah. Stephen did end up going to talk to the police later that day. He claims when they were at the lake house that he kissed her some and he made further advances, but she refused and claimed that she had had a bad experience in the past and wanted to know him more before she went to bed with him, which doesn't really seem in her character because she didn't really put herself in that far. Yeah, she didn't put herself in those situations. And he said that he was okay with that. But from his past charges, we know, mm. no, he's not. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So he says Gina drove him home where he arrived about 4.30 in the morning and went to bed. And that was the last time he saw her. When the police go to talk to him again later, he added that Bill and Robin spoke to and saw Gina, which is something that the police found odd that he had omitted before. Cause it's like, you would think that that would be important information to impart. Wow. So on Tuesday, Epperly went to a friend, Bill Cranwell, to ask if Cranwell's brother, who is a really well-known attorney in the area, would represent him if he was linked to a missing girl's case. And we'll get right to that after a quick word about our sponsors. Britt, what do you usually get up to around the holidays? Not really a whole lot. Why? Well, my family does this thing that we call mandatory family fun. It's essentially just family game nights. And this year, we're going to be trying out Finder Seekers. It's this awesome game with a monthly subscription where each box has puzzles based on different cities around the world. Ooh, is it kind of like a scavenger hunt? Yeah, a scavenger hunt from the comfort of your own home. I'm excited to add this game to our family nights. You should try it out. Go to finderseekers.com and sign up for your box today. So Bill didn't even ask his brother. He was just like, yeah, my brother's not going to want to be involved in something of that magnitude. And Epperly kind of, he shifted gears a little bit. He's like, then can you ask him if they could do anything to me if they can't find the body? Oh. <laughs> Which like, hello, red flag alert. <laughs> Bill Cranwell, I think he later realized that the missing girl Like he hadn't heard about the case yet. So he went and looked at the newspaper and read up on it. And that's when he realized that the missing girl was actually the daughter of his old college roommate and teammate. (laughs) So him and Gina's father were college roommates. They were both on the football team. I think it was Virginia Tech was where they went. So they were really close friends. So (laughs) what he ended up doing was he called the police after that conversation being like, hey, this is what he just asked me, you know? And I think that's kind of what made him become more of a suspect Mm -hmm. because obviously he was the last person to see her. So they were kind of focusing on him, but they were Mm -hmm. looking at other leads. But then that question is definitely one that's going to be like, okay, why would he ask that if he wasn't guilty, you know? So in another follow-up interview, they had another police officer um, interview him Mm -hmm. that from the one who had interviewed him the first time, Epperly reused a lot of the same phrases and certain words pretty much verbatim to the original story he gave, which they said is more of an indication that it was rehearsed Mm -hmm. and not that he was telling the truth because like, usually if you're telling the truth, you're not always going to tell the story the exact same way like, like gonna, it's gonna be very 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 similar but it's not gonna be like 
Word for word, verbatim. Yes. So after interviewing Bill King, they realized that Epperly had lied about King having heard or seen Gina that night. So that was a red flag. Then at the time, they didn't really have centralized police records. So they didn't know about Epperly's violent history right away. Mm -hmm. But it started to come to light around this time as well. But because I think it was the charges were never really official. So they hadn't shown up in a background check when they had done that before. But now they were starting to come to light. They heard about the rape cases. So they secured a warrant. And with King's permission, they went to search the lake house. And so what they found there was they found that stain in the den, that wet spot. It was partially cleaned, but the carpet was a pinkish color, so most likely blood. They also found minute blood stains in four other rooms and outside. On the stairs between the first and second floor, they found Gina's ankle bracelet with a broken clasp. In a utility closet or something along those lines, they found a golf shoe with blood and pubic hair in the metal spikes. Ooh, how does pubic hair get in the shoe? <laughs> yeah, that I'm assuming he stomped on her body or something like that, but we don't know because they didn't find the body. So all of the blood, I think they found some also on the refrigerator that looked like it had been cleaned up. But basically, there was just blood in various rooms throughout the lake house. Mm-hmm. And that looked like it had been cleaned up or attempted to be cleaned up. So when Bill's parents came back from vacation, they were asked if anything was missing. They said that there were six items, including a quilt, a bathroom mat, bathroom cleaner, paper towels, and then two towels, one of them being blue, which goes back to what Robin saw with the blue towel. And this will also come up again in a little bit. So Epperly took a polygraph test and he, okay, so polygraph tests, basically lie detector tests, they are not really actually detecting if you're lying. It's measuring like your bodily responses that tend to happen when somebody's being deceptive. And they're not always accurate. I feel like we Yes, they're not always accurate, but the only questions where they detected deception were when he was asked if he had killed her, if he'd hurt her, or if he knew where her whereabouts were. Those are the only questions that they detected deception. Okay. Like, basically all the questions that... Yeah. So they didn't really have a whole lot to work with, so there were two psychics that the family had called in to work on the case. That Yeah. I don't believe in psychics because I I believe in ghosts. Mm-hmm. I believe I'm agnostic. I feel like I should put that out there. Mm-hmm. I'm not a not believer, but psychics always seem to come in on big media cases. <laughs> yeah. And I get it. But like at the same time. Yeah, it's like they're just trying to put themselves out there. Although, to be fair, the first psychic D had called him because some friends, I think, had seen him on a TV show appearance or something. And so they were like, oh, you should call this guy because he had helped on a couple of cases successfully. But I feel like like real psychics aren't going to be. Yeah. The other psychic, the second one, Dorothy Allison, she had called, I think it was the father and got involved that way. Ugh, no. Like, you know, it's one thing to call a psychic and seek their help. It's another thing to not know this family and put yourself there. And I'm not saying psychics are not real because I do believe in psychics. Like I said, I believe in psychics. I believe in, you know, spirits. 
Yeah. I believe in all that. I just feel like maybe don't put yourself where you don't belong. Yes. Agreed. So while these people were searching around the river and that area, somebody found a blue towel with blood stains on it while searching. And another person found one of Gina's purple shoes. And then about two weeks later, they found Gina's clothes that were kind of like tied up in a bundle and they were bloodstained under the railroad trestle near the new river. So her body's got to be somewhere where water is. Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, they were searching the river. They were searching the lake and they Yeah, but if it's our river, rivers go out to the ocean. Yeah. Well, and this one I think was created from a dam. So I know that they had had them pull back on the amount of water that was coming through so that the current wouldn't be as full. Yeah. Yeah. But they never found anything. Because at that point, she's probably like if she was buried in water, she was probably already taken out to sea. Yeah. John Hall. Gina's father actually met with Epperly in a secure location with police presence. Essentially, they met in the back of a car. What? To, so there were police outside. Yeah, it was. it's really unprecedented because the victim's family is not usually going to be... Nice. <laughs> yeah, they're not going to be nice. They're not going to be in proximity to the suspect. But I guess because John Hall had developed a rapport with the police officers, they were like, okay, well, we'll watch it to make sure that if anything happens, that we'll be there to intervene. But basically, the only thing John Hall wanted was he just wanted to beg Epperly to give any sort of information that could lead to finding Gina. Like People he wasn't like even- this thrive off that though. So Everly was, I mean, I don't know him and I'm not, like I've said before in episodes, <laughs> I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a doctor, but he is probably thriving off the fact that he's begging to know where his daughter is. And Everly yeah. probably gets off on the fact that he's the only person that knows where the body is. Yeah, I could see that. So, Basically, he's begging him for any information. Like, he wasn't even saying that he thinks he's guilty of killing Gina. He was just saying, if you have any information that could help us find her, then please give it to us. But Epperly continued to insist that he didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Epperly at the time was working as, I think, like a maintenance person at Radford University. So the school either fired him or asked him to resign on July yeah, 9th. Probably because they're like, uh, oh, I'm surprised he got with rape, not like. Obviously, he wasn't convicted of the rape charges, but even being involved with a rape or a possible rape, I guess. Yeah. And so he left that job on July 9th. And then the next day he moved to Roanoke, which is about 45 miles northeast because he was apparently getting death threats. Once he got to Roanoke, he acquired a lawyer, Richard Lee Lawrence. He was the same lawyer who worked on that second rape charge. He assured him that he could not be charged with murder without a body because like I said, in Virginia, that had never been done before. Nobody could have been charged with conspiracy. That's true. Because of all of the circumstantial evidence pointing to him, they didn't have a body, so that's why all of it was considered circumstantial. They didn't have a cause of death. They didn't have a body. They didn't have a weapon either. I mean, technically, none of the circumstantial evidence was on anything that belonged to Stephen uh, to play devil's advocate. Like it was in Gina's car. It was at Bill's parents' house, mm-hmm. their towel. He sold their items. Yeah. And also I do believe they had people look at Stephen Epperly's parents' house. Like they looked in his room, in the garden, in the shed, in the back. They checked his car and they didn't find anything. So mm-hmm. I do want to put that out there. Like I'm not saying that 
he did all that but he also that night the only thing they maybe could have found would be steven's clothes but i think found her gina's broken ankle yeah and so they found all of this stuff that pointed to him because he was also the last person to have seen or spoken with her yeah it's reportedly yeah they didn't have a body they didn't have a weapon they didn't know how he killed her if he actually did kill her but did they even have a motive no and this is where i'm a little iffy on the first degree murder part because first degree murder like we said you have to go into it with a premeditated intent to kill this person second degree like maybe he wanted to have sex and so he made advances and she turned him down yeah that's what i'm thinking is at best second degree because I do want to play devil's advocate, not saying obviously he was convicted, but wrongful convictions do happen a lot. And that's why I think second degree would be more likely to, if they had done this case now, second degree, I think would be the one that he would actually be charged with. Because mm-hmm. you get life with first. I think you can get out in like 20 years. Yeah. So basically the state had to prove that Gina was dead. Her death was a result of Epperly's actions and he had specific intent to kill her. So those were the things that the state had to do to get him convicted of first degree murder. Because like I said, they had no body, they had no weapon, they didn't have any eyewitnesses to the killing or anything like that. No motive. There's a term called corpus delicti, I think it is, which means the elements of the crime. In other words, that they had to prove that the victim was unlawfully killed within the jurisdiction of the court where they accused a standing trial. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of the basis that they worked with, with that conviction. Like I said, he was actually convicted with first degree murder and he received a life in prison sentence. In the aftermath, he did appeal, but he lost the appeal. They actually heard the appeal, but he didn't win. His argument was that no reasonable jury could have found him guilty of first degree murder with the facts presented, which I said I kind of agree with. The elements of the crime are one, a killing, two, a reasoning process antecedent to the act of killing, resulting in the formation of specific intent to kill, and three, the performance of that act with malicious intent. I think those are the criteria for first degree murder, but basically in their reasoning for why he did not win the appeal, the state didn't need to show intent having to have lasted like a very long time. So they're saying that even if he had the intent to kill just for like one minute before he did it, that still counts as first degree. Uh, I feel like that's kind of contradicting because second degree is heat of the moment. So you have intent to kill heat in the moment. Yeah. and even Which I guess, I guess second degree like heat of the moment, which could mean like you're arguing and then all of a sudden you kill this person. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, um, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the hard part is that there's a lot of like legal interpretation of things, and because we're not lawyers, it's it's hard to really. I feel like had they not okay, so if he actually is guilty, which let me rephrase, he is guilty, mm-hmm. but if they had not pressed charges when they did, and they let him continue to be free and just closely watched him, he would have, I think, messed up at some point. Probably. And he could have got him on something more solid, but I don't know what is more solid than first-degree murder, so... Mm-hmm. He also argued the suppression of exculpatory evidence, which I think is baloney. Okay, so he said... 
They suppressed material exculpatory evidence. They had used a dog tracking expert, John Preston, who, when he tells people to bring something of the victim or the suspect to have the dog sniff, he instructs them that they need to have that item in a sealed container and separate from anyone involved in the investigation. Basically, he's saying that because the officer who was handling it had put the... I think what they did was they got underwear or something like that from Stephen's mother, but they had just put the underwear in a paper bag, so it wasn't, like, sealed or anything like that. So I think he was arguing that because the prosecutor failed to ensure that those instructions were followed... The evidence from the dog was invalid. I think, that, yeah, they could have just like redid it. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like redid the dog with a different dog, new evidence. Yeah, and he was also saying that because the defense counsel's ignorance of these instructions at trial prevented them from undermining the evidence from the dog thing. So that was his argument there. Which I think at that point they could have just not used the dog, like ruled that. Yeah, and that's the thing, too, is that even without that dog tracking evidence, I didn't even mention it. So even without all of that... Did they ever test the pubic hair that they found in the car and then in the shoe? Uh, I believe they did. Was it Gina's or was it his? Well, at the time, this was in the very, very early 80s. So DNA testing wasn't as solid as it is today where they could identify it specifically to a specific person. They could compare it. Like they could compare hair samples with other hair samples. So I don't know if they could specifically say that the pubic hair was Gina's, but Mm -hmm. they did find head hair in the car. And I think they compared it to head hair from like her brush or her curlers or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And then they could also identify like blood groups, but not specific DNA. Like this DNA specifically belongs to this person. I don't know if that's been retested since then. I don't know if anybody's like trying to do that. Not. Yeah. And then he also argued prosecutorial misconduct, which this is valid because the prosecutor apparently instructed three officers not to speak with the defense counsel. So, yeah, like that one I could understand. But I don't think any of that was enough to really overturn his conviction. Maybe not overturn it, but give him a new trial. Yeah. Like I said, he lost that appeal. And then he was sentenced before Virginia apparently abolished parole, which means he's occasionally up for parole every now and then. He was turned down in November of 2019, but I think he was up again in May. I didn't see any information necessarily about it. So Virginia, you can't have parole. That's the thing is that I don't think that's the case. Or maybe it's just parole for people who have been convicted of murder. It didn't specifically say. Yeah, Maybe you shouldn't. If yeah. you're convicted of first degree murder, <laughs> maybe you should not be. Yeah, uh, I would agree. In November of 2019, he was 68 years old. So he was denied parole then. And then recently, so I thought maybe it, they had found her body. Oh, but they did not find her body. They did find DNA in some places. I'm just going to read some quotes from this article just because I didn't completely understand it. So (laughs) I'll just put it out there for people. In 2016, Gina's sister said that a farmer's grandson reported to the Radford Police Department that his family had held a secret since 1980. He said his grandfather had witnessed what he believed to be two men dismembering a body in Meadow Creek. And they were driving a white van and he believed the woman to be Gina Hall. So that's what sparked her on this journey to search for the body. So now we have another. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently. I don't know. 
Um, in 2019, Gina's sister was introduced to a Dr. Arpad Vass, a forensic anthropologist who invented an instrument to detect DNA buried beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. Yeah. I mean, I get the concept, but there's so yeah. much that could be contaminated. And, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Since then, Gina's, quote, remains have been discovered across eight locations throughout the New River Valley using that device. They said they also found DNA from somebody named Angela Radar, who was believed to be a runaway teen in 1977. Gina's sister is under the belief that there are possibly more victims that they don't know about. But from Steven, I think so. That seemed to be what they were implying. But I don't know if that's true and they said he was 28 at the time that she disappeared yeah he was 28 i mean i guess but the way that he reacted after like she was reported missing kind of seems like i don't know somebody who had murdered before kind of seems like they would have it more together versus him yeah and i really think he my personal opinion is that he could have like he did it and then it was dumb luck and it was also the 80s so (laughs) yeah that's for sure but yeah i definitely think he's guilty i think he did it i don't know if i would say he was guilty of first degree murder but but it's kind of hard to like determine that without yeah without a body without a cause of death without evidence yeah without like specific evidence to the fact that she's dead what happened to her how she died it's very hard to determine yeah whether or not it was intentional anything like that he still maintains his innocence and i don't know if that necessarily means anything because there are people like you said wrongful convictions do happen but i find it very hard to believe that around 4 30 4 45 when steven left with gina quote unquote yeah he left with her left with her body yeah to 5 20 ish in the morning that gina would have encountered anybody else who would have murdered her so yeah i don't know like it's possible sure but i feel like it's very improbable how likely is it yeah it's very improbable to me that's that would have happened because her sister said she's not one of those people who ran in those kind of circles. Apparently, Stephen did. He was friends with some guy who did. I don't remember his name. He was running in circles with this guy who like had a drug dealing business. And some people thought maybe he was the muscle for it or something mm-hmm. along those lines. But that was never proven. So that's what I didn't really necessarily bring that up for that reason. Well, I mean, he could have done it, but he could have very well possibly just been at the wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. So this one's interesting. Like, I think he did it. I don't know if I'd say he intended to kill her when he took her up there. I think because of the testimonies about the rape charges, I would believe that he had did some advances. Maybe in the process, he accidentally killed her or something in his fit of rage because he had a temper that was documented in on multiple occasions. And yeah, so I think maybe second degree at the most. But yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to retry this case because at this point, it's like... I not retry it, but maybe like not reinvestigate it, but look for 
into it. Yeah. I don't know if anybody would do that, though, because like I mentioned, he's almost 70 years old. The family, I guess, in a sense, people want the family to have closure. And so once they I've noticed that, especially around here, because this happened maybe like an hour or two hours away from where I currently live, is that there's this mindset of like uh, there's a stubbornness, I think, of not just the people, but also police officers where it's like we definitely got the right guy. They're not inclined to really look deeper into it once they feel like they have found the person. And that's what it don't even start <laughs> inconsistency mm-hmm. with the justice not all yeah. i don't yeah. want to like make a vague statement that says the entire justice system is bad apples yeah. but there's just so many and i feel like a lot of the times cases like this not all cases but cases similar to mm-hmm. this the uh, police officers and the justice system want to give the victims closure and they also don't want to look that much more into it yeah they want the easiest answer possible and sometimes that's just not the case Mm -hmm. and we will see a little bit more of that specifically from police officers in this area when we talk about one of the bigger cases that i'm researching because there's been telling me about Yes. So there's one officer who worked on the case in that day who is adamant that they got the right people. And then there's the other one who actually has changed his mind since then. So I think it's really hate when that happens. And you see that with the the West Memphis three case, Mm -hmm. which we will cover. That is a case that I am very excited to cover because I think it's a very important case to put out there. Mm -hmm. And it's just mind boggling. But that the police officers, you know, and you do have some officers do full-heartedly believe that they did their best, that this is the person that did it. Mm-hmm. And and I hate when another officer that worked the same case with this, with the one that agrees that this person is the one that did it has different answers because then you're like, well, which is it? Is this the right person or not? Yeah. And I think it just kind of goes back to the stubbornness of police officers because like i don't think anybody likes to be criticized for their work so i get that in a sense i also don't believe that it's in a place of malicious intent most mm-hmm. of the time i think they really do want to give these victims families closures yeah unfortunately you do have cases where they convict the wrong person but they're mm-hmm. so adamant about giving the victim family closure and just closing this case and get you know a serial killer or a killer or a rapist off the street yeah um and unfortunately i feel like that might sometimes get in the way of who actually did it and actually serving justice. And that's something that you see time and time and again. And hopefully, you know, I do have full hope that we can get into the right direction, that that won't happen as often because I don't think there is a foolproof plan to keep it from happening. And I think nowadays with better DNA technology, it's definitely going to be better going forward. Yeah. Assuming that the police officers actually will take that into account. I think what I mentioned with this one case is that the police officer doesn't want to really look at the DNA evidence that has since come to light, basically. Yeah. So well, they might not even have, I don't know if they keep it or how long they keep it, but they could have lost it. That's very true. So who knows if they can actually look into it more. I don't know if anybody will, but as it stands, Stephen Epperly is still alive. He's still in prison. What do you guys think? Do you guys think he did it? Yes. I would like to hear your guys' thoughts and maybe we can just open a discussion. Maybe we can post about it on Instagram. And Would that be something that you guys are interested in? Like doing a live where we just discuss this case? Yeah. 
because I, I think that would be fun. Ah. It's a, a shockingly wicked, unscripted. <laughs> oh, yeah. not, not that most of this is scripted. But. We're not really scripted. We just have notes. Yeah, we, we have notes so that we make sure we hit all the important topics. And then from there, we're just kind of like, eh, whatever. Like, whatever. It's no, shockingly wicked, unedited. Yes, that works. Um, also, I just want you guys to know, I actually just finished researching maybe like half an hour before. And I took a nap. So <laughs> I, I fell asleep while I was reading the book and I was like, oh shit. <laughs> so I, I went to... That's why I don't do cases that have books because I'm sure that the writer is a really good writer and I'm sure that they, that's really good, but <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> to be fair, the only reason why I fell asleep is because I did not sleep well last night. Aww. So I was laying in bed reading and then I just I got so comfy that I ended up dozing off so I napped and then I was like oh shit I don't know what the end of the case was like so I had to go, <laughs> go research real quick to uh, to get all those details so hopefully that didn't seem like it was <laughs> not a substantial full case load but anyway that's <laughs> this that. is what you get I don't know what else you want from us yeah we're trying our best that's the case let us know what you think whether you believe he was guilty or if he was in the wrong place at the wrong time I would like to hear your thoughts also um, if you guys want to head over to our Facebook group we can make a post where everybody can comment mm-hmm. but remember if you do that we don't hate on other people's opinions yes. so please keep it nice and please keep it respectful I want to reiterate all of our social media are safe places for people. Yes. And if you can't do that, then you will be blocked. Yeah. Blocked. (laughs) Hashtag blocked. I'm not afraid. (laughs) We're not afraid of the black button. So find us on our social media. We're at Instagram at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We are on Twitter at Wicked Podcast One, where we have actually been a little bit more active. And by we, I I know we got a whole bunch of followers in just like 24 hours. And by we, I mean Brit because she's great and she does that and I don't. (laughs) Okay, listen, for all my podcast people who listen, I went on TikTok and I searched the video, How to Grow Your Podcast. And they told me. Yes, so if you are in need of more listeners for your podcast go to tiktok (laughs) (laughs) yes there's actually a lot of useful information on tiktok amongst all of the silly videos (laughs) (laughs) all right we are also on tiktok at shockingly wicked we are on facebook our facebook group is shockingly wicked podcast you can just search it it's a private group so you do have to request to join but it's just to make sure you agree to the rules yeah basically um and then we are also on youtube where we have our closed caption videos and you can just search up shockingly wicked podcast and we should pop up yeah don't forget if you'd rather just have captions if you can't understand this or if there's a reason where you can't listen to a podcast like other people yes go to our closed caption videos on youtube yes because i spend a lot of time doing that so yeah (laughs) so we have that subscribe so we can get a custom url so we can tell you how to easily find us (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Please do. So leave us a review. Um, I believe you can do that on Apple Podcast. I don't think you can do that on Spotify, but we do have Podchaser, which I guess is another place where you can leave reviews. So let us know mm-hmm. what you think. Mm-hmm. And if you guys want a future shout out on an episode, like we did Natalie, the beginning of this episode, leave us a review on Apple iTunes. And if you want to make sure that we see it, 
send it to us at our Gmail and we will give you a shout out. Yes. And we're having a little giveaway. You'll get a little something, something. Yes. Um, if you leave us a review or, yeah, no, if you just leave us a review, we'll uh, <laughs> make a couple of you to send you a little something, something, you know. If you have case suggestions, we would like we to need hear them. some case suggestions. Actually, we don't. We actually have a list of like what we want to cover and we're adding to it daily, but... Details. <laughs> we like more case suggestions anyway, because hopefully this will be a long-running podcast, thanks to you guys. Yeah. So I mean, we're just talking to ourselves right now. <laughs> I mean, details. Details! <laughs> so you can send those either through our Gmail account, which is shockinglywickedpodcast at gmail.com, or you can send them through DMs on Twitter or Instagram. Probably Instagram is the easiest way to do that. But, but send it to our Gmail, preferably. Yes. Because we get a lot of messages on it, um, Instagram. And sometimes I accidentally miss them on accident. Yeah, Britt's very social on there, and I am not. So, so send us to that on Gmail. Yes, so I believe that is everything. So thank you guys again for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Bye.